Hello and welcome to this edition of the Faber Podcast. My name is George Miller, and my guest in this programme is Richard T. Kelly. I interviewed Richard in the very first Faber Podcast, when his huge debut novel, Crusaders, came out. That was an ambitious State of the Nation novel set in the Northeast in the mid-90s. He has followed it up with a chilling tale set in the present day, which pays homage to some of the great 19th-century classics of Gothic fiction. When successful but increasingly discontented cosmetic surgeon Robert Forrest goes missing one summer evening, the police find no evidence of foul play. It therefore falls to his childhood friends and fellow doctors, Gray Lochran and Steve Hartford, to conduct an investigation of their own into his disappearance. This will lead them into a series of increasingly troubling encounters in order to uncover the full horror of what happened to their friend. I should warn you that, although we try in this interview not to give any plot spoilers, attentive listeners may pick up some clues about Dr Forrest's fate, and may therefore prefer to listen to it after reading the book. I began by asking Richard to tell me about the appetite for the Gothic that he developed in his adolescence. I did have that kid's interest in horror and supernatural and the childish desire to confront myself with the worst things that I could imagine or or, or hadn't previously imagined, if you like. And, and that goes for all the sort of, you know, grotesque and gory pop culture. But I, I mean, to be honest, the things that have stayed with me more were, were things I encountered on the page in, in the sort of late Victorian Gothic novels that I think most readers do discover quite early. That's Bram Stoker's Dracula and Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and uh, Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I probably picked them up because I'd seen the Hammer Horror film or the Universal Horror film or whatever, but but they had a, um, uh, the great thing is, and this, is a, this is a great thing about literature, they were obviously better. <laughs> they they, they um, flowered in the mind in a way that was uh, uh, better, even than some of those very fine film versions, but the, the, the quality of the of the, the horror uh, uh, and the enthrallment of it was just infinitely greater. And so... Th- those books have been with me just as you know, uh, as, as much as, albeit in a different compartment, to the sort of the other uh, slightly more uh, heavyweight nineteenth-century books I, I also claim to love. I presume it's no accident that your three doctors are Scottish. Yeah, well, I think Scotland is the spiritual home of the Gothic in these uh, British Isles. Um, I think people uh, know Jekyll and Hyde even if they haven't read it and, and surprisingly many people haven't actually but as the classic account of a you know a, a, a man's dark side and also of a, of a place that has a double side to it too the the dual nature of Edinburgh's old and new town the idea that a city itself and a society might um, encourage those kind of, of ghosts the famous, what uh, Hugh McDermott and others call the famous Caledonian anti-syzygy, yeah, the ability of the Scots to hold two things in their head at all times. <laughs> so, um, yes, uh, undoubtedly. One should also mention, to uh, a lesser-known popular work, but one that's just as influential as Jekyll and Hyde and uh, James Hogg's Confessions of a Justified Sinner, which is the other great, I think, statement of that, that uh, dual-mindedness. And also, if, if it's no accident they're Scottish, I guess it's no accident they're doctors. There's something yeah. particularly, potentially overreaching, maybe, about the medical profession. It's in the the DNA of the, the Gothic, uh, certainly Gothic as in the late Victorian Gothic, that, that defines what we think of as the Gothic. I mean, Frankenstein comes a little earlier than that, but as we know, the, the enduring power of that work, and it's just been revived again to, to great 
a claim and interest is uh, is a parable of of science and what are the boundaries of science. And the same themes are there in, in Jekyll and Hyde, the, the, to a degree, the idea of transcendental medicine, uh, as Dr. Jekyll calls it, because he makes this extraordinary compound uh, <laughs> through chemistry that, that brings this man out from inside of him. So m- medicine and science have always tested the boundaries of, of, of what a human being is. And obviously in our age of stem cell therapies and radical cosmetic surgery and so forth they continue to do so so it's an obvious place I think to be if you're looking for those metaphors in a present day setting surgery and so forth and in a way I feel uh, I could have written a different kind of book in which gene therapy would create its own set of horrors a la Frankenstein but I I went in a sort of uh, you might say a Faustian direction to find my horror (laughs) And your your medical impulse is kind of split in three directions, isn't it? As I say, there are three doctors, and one of them is a plastic surgeon, so concerned with, with beauty and perfecting the, the outward form. One of them is a psychiatrist, so concerned with the life of the mind. And the third is working in pediatrics, pediatric, pediatric mm. surgery. Mm. So three different aspects of, of modern medicine reflected in them. Yes. Well, I mean, I uh, as a journalist by nature, I did a lot of, res- even though I knew this book would be very fanciful, I did the same amount of research for it as I would do on anything as I did in a way with Crusaders because I wanted to know what these people are like because they are I think in our minds quite you know distinctive professions and and I did discover in a way just as with, with Crusaders I found that you know within the Church of England there are some very distinctive uh, schemes of, of, of thought and temperament with, with uh, the different uh, traditions within the faith uh, within medicine too within the callings as a, as a strong caste system I found you know you know, all these bright people who go to, to medical school feeling a vocation or a calling, but they, once they find what they want to do and what they're capable of doing, they become, they follow very different paths. Certainly the attitude of surgeons towards every other type of clinician is, uh, there's no question that they're the dominant dogs in the pack. And if you're a psychiatrist, by God, you might as well um, be uh, scrabbling for leftovers in their minds because it's seen as being, you know, if if you uh, do your curing by the edge of a blade, as it were, you're seen to be um, in the front line. And if you're trying to unpick the mind by drugs and whatnot, then you're seen to be in a rather desperate version of social work. So, yeah, I found all of that you know, in t- you know, uh, eminently inspiring. And these three men have reached middle age. They're, they're all school contemporaries and friends. And they've reached that that midpoint in the in, mm. in Dante's middle of the forest, haven't they? It. Where things no longer seem clear and yeah. death doesn't seem quite such a, a remote possibility. Yeah, they're all coping with it in different ways based on their, their sort of different strengths. The paediatrician, Dr. Lochran, is seen to be, I think, probably the most stalwart of the three. He's got a very rooted attitude to life and what he does. His, his particular form of medical service, you know, performing these difficult procedures on very small infants and children with, you know, p- parents waiting in, in desperate states of anxiety in the, in the waiting room. There's a sense that he's a big enough man to have, have taken on that burden in life. He's the friend you would want. He's, he's almost like a sort of father figure, isn't he, in the, of the three? His friend, yeah, his friends sort of bashfully or otherwise think of him that way. It's like, where would they be without him? And I think a, a lot of us can recognise that in our own friendships. There's always um, someone that you know would be your, you know, safe port in a storm and the person you would call if you were absolutely up against it and that's Gray Lochran but it, he 
no more than any of us is um, uh, safe from the existential gloom that, that uh, can creep in at a certain point. And so he's feeling that in his own bluff way. The other two characters, Dr. Hartford is seen to be in, in, in a marriage that's, that's not worked, has difficulty relating to his children and difficulty above all in, in his profession of psychiatry. You know, he's given to dark thoughts about whether psychiatry has really moved on from the application of leeches when it comes to trying to to see what's going on inside the, the mind of a schizophrenic. So he has that, that gloom. And Dr. Forrest, whose disappearance is the inciting incident, He's seen to have got himself in a world of trouble, sailing through life slightly, or so it seemed, without dependence and, and, and with a, an almost arrogantly uh, superficial attitude to uh, how he conducted his life because he had seeming wealth and a, a bevy of attractive female companions and whatnot. But uh, it suddenly revealed to have all unraveled very quickly for him, hence his friends wondering what exactly it is that he's done. And um, in, in, in the Gothic style, you don't have an omniscient narrator. You have a narrative which is composed of diaries and letters and yeah. journal jottings. Yeah, well, that's a very much a debt of love to the, the classic Gothic novel. Uh, anyone who has read Frankenstein and Dracula and Jekyll and Hyde will be aware of the, the brilliant and fascinating construction of those novels. Jekyll and Hyde. It's most interesting the way because people who only seen the movies imagine that it's a first person account of a, of a doctor's experiments, and of course it's not. It's it, Hyde uh, is, a, is a figure who's only seen for, for the, the longer part of the narrative through Jekyll's close friends, who are wondering what on earth is wrong with their friend. Uh, Dracula, of course, is similarly composed by letters, a, a, a psychiatrist's phonograph recordings, a captain's log, you know, and. And there's something beautiful about that as a way to build a novel because it inherently uh, destabilizes the story and keeps the reader on their guard and makes you wonder um, what can be taken for real and, and unreal. And it also allows all sorts of suspicions and ambiguities to creep in, in the gaps, if you like. So um, I wanted very much to, to build a novel that way and hope that the readers could be similarly you know, intrigued by that structure. You set yourself what seems to me a considerable technical challenge because, as you mentioned in your reading, the confession of Dr. Forrest comes as the final third of the book mm. and leads the reader to completely reappraise many of the major events which have gone before it in the in the narrative, and yet that narrative still has to, has to hold. Mm. Yeah, well, again, I, I think that is a nice way to tell a story. Um, I mean, it remains to be seen how uh, readers will feel about it. <laughs> In the present day, but I think I, I get the sense from early readers that, that they—that's um, a conceit that they almost like best of all about this sort of a book. The technical trick on the page is making sure that both all, all sides of your story match up. And I, I, I frittered a lot of hours, as it were, because the book is, of course, every, every every part of the book is dated. Um, I had to make sure that I was in, in sync uh, with my uh, multiple narratives. But I, I do think it's... <laughs> it's probably a spreadsheet programme you can get for that, for, for troubled troubled novelists. Well, I, I know that I often resort to, to yellow post-it notes on, on a wall, and, I, and I'm reassured, having read enough of those uh, magazine features about how writers work, that they, it's, a, it's a common uh, and an inexpensive way to do it. Now, Eros is a big part of the Gothic. Tell me how you, tell me how you approach that sort of side of this story. There is another 
a text that probably deserves mentioning in that gothic uh, canon, which is Oscar Wilde's picture of Dorian Gray, uh, because with midlife, for a lot of men, I think they take the generalized view of, of George Orwell that after the age of 40, you've got the face you deserve. But our, our culture has changed, and, and, and there have always been men who have a different view about making a good appearance and, and being you know, prideful about their looks. And... Um, and Dr. Forrest is one of those people too, and as someone who's kind of very clearly romped and, uh, uh, through um, a good deal of, of physical uh, hedonism in his time. And the, the, the sense of that decline, the sense that that world is slipping from him in, in midlife and that women now look through him where they once looked very directly at him, is slowly revealed to ha- as having been a large part of the, his, his desperation and, and what uh, he desires to, to claw back, even by um, diabolical means. And I think his is a drastic case, but uh, we all have a little bit of a shared feeling of what that might be. <laughs> you know, that, that, um, that sexuality is a very powerful driver, you know, and we expect it to go away with, with maturity and, and, and sense <laughs> and good sense, but it's persistent. You know? I mean, it struck me reading it that, that part of the pleasure of the book is sort of being teased by by you, feeling that you, you're dimly grasping something that might be happening, but not entirely being certain of it, and then getting to the end of the confession and, and things slotting into place. But, but existing in that uncertain zone for much of the book, like the characters, is actually where the sort of pleasure of the reading comes from. Yeah, I would hope so. You know, I think that the reader... You you always I think, understand implicitly in the conception of a, in writing of a novel that the reader is quicker than you are and is always going to be about five paces ahead in a default way. So it's um, how do you get on par with them? But also you do want that that pleasure, which I think the reader can share of, of an, an insinuation uh, and an idea that dawns upon them, and therefore they get to share a little bit in that um, sense of uh, of realization and and. and subtext and insinuation in a sequence. In the novel, the, these two doctors are, go out actively to try and find out what's happened to their friend Forrest because they know the police won't. And what happens instead is that they find themselves being bedeviled by these bizarre incidents and rather often menacing and threatening strangers who, who intervene in their lives. And they, they can't believe in their own rational minds that what they're encountering is has anything to do with their friend Forrest, and yet the reader will see that uh, having taking all the evidence into mind, it may well be that, that Dr. Forrest is a good deal closer to them than they, they actually thought. And lots of mirrors in the book too, from from Forrest's large cheval glass to, to the speculum, and lo- I suppose I suppose that's 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 you know addressing the fundamental question of who we are. You know, when we when we look in the mirror, who who are we? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you've not got a better uh, metaphor in in physical existence in the mirror, I think, on that score. Um, and they are endlessly fascinating. And, and uh, uh, Forrest is a, is a, seemed to be a, a sort of collector of, of uh, antique mirrors and whatnot. Um, and the uh, the idea of the encounter with the mirror belongs so strongly in this fiction, whether it's Dracula's shrinking from the, the glass to the, the, the famous uh, encounter that, that uh, Jekyll first makes with with Mr. Hyde, where he can, where he realizes that this, this too, this reflection is himself. 
And again, I, 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 I do owe this debt to, to Cocteau. I, I'm sure someone else did it, but in, in the wonderful film he made of the Orpheus uh, myth, uh, he created this uh, angel of, of death who you know, moves freely between the, the underworld and, and our world through the surface of a mirror. And uh, uh, I, you know, that is a marvelous idea, and I thought it's simply too good for me not to appropriate. <laughs> Tell me about the soundtrack to this book, Richard. You, you've written about that online. Um, and music is quite important, isn't it? Both it sounds when you're writing it, but also in the, in the fabric of the book itself. Well, again, I think it comes back to the, 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 the rich, fertile cultural ground of, of what we think of as the, that, that fin de siècle and, and uh, the early 20th century before the war, let's say, that um, just as in art... Um, there were, there were new and explicit and, 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 and fragmented and unnerving uh, images being painted. Uh, music was having this remarkable transformation also. And some of the, the, the key figures in, um, in early 20th century music are, are in this book for that reason. Uh, they're there partly because it's the music that I listen to uh, when I want to when I want some help into sinking into that kind of mood, um, I think Bartok, whose who string quartets were, uh, you know, such a, a classic piece of early modernist composition before he got, you know, increasingly radical. And then Ligeti, who in, in the 50s and 60s you know, completely broke out of uh, traditional composition into what he called these sound masses, uh, incredibly um, texturally uh unnerving pieces um, and it's the kind of music that I want on when I'm writing I, I, I can't say anything useful or rational about it because uh, I, I just haven't got the tools but I, I'm sort of vaguely reassured that, that very few people can you know the, 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 there's a great saying that you know that the, the, the only valid music criticism is, is in music you know and if you want to explain an A2, you sit down and play it again uh, I'm just glad to be a sort of um, consumer of it it, it, it helps me in that way. Uh, and also, I, I always have to say this before I get too rarefied about it, when I get stuck writing and, and that stuff uh, seems a little too high flown, I just put Led Zeppelin on like everybody else just to get the blood beaten around the body one more time. I, I thought it was interesting, Richard, that for all the, how shall we put it, all that Dr. Forrest goes through, that language remains. He retains if there is a way in which he retains a sense of self through all his vicissitudes it is through the ability to master and control his language control his narrative mm. is that, i mean is that is that significant do you think yeah i mean i think you know if if when the day comes that you can't explain yourself to yourself then you're you know you're that's that way madness mm. lies and um, I mean, one could one could imagine that you know, that kind of fragmentation would be a possible outcome mm, of what he's gone through. Absolutely, absolutely. But there's a part of him. I think there's an honourable tradition in this sort of literature, and this, is, this comes back to why doctors, physicians, or scientists are the right protagonists for it. They can, in, in, they can, they have a capacity that we lay people don't to accept themselves as a work in progress or an experiment, if need be. I've heard it said by uh, some people I talked to in the profession about how you, you you can never leave your experiments alone, they always come back to you. And uh, in the same way, I think there's something, uh, a really good surgeon has a, has a 
has the, the chip of ice in their heart. I think that Graham Greene said the novelist ought to have. They have a uh, they have a quality of dispassion that is essential, essential to the bedside manner, essential to the ability to to, to cut into flesh with a scalpel to cure. So um, Forrest is, is made of that stern stuff and uh, begins, uh, and so therefore. Uh, as he, as he puts it himself, when it comes to the idea of sound, mind, and body, you know that his body <laughs> is, is is void of form after a while. But it, but in, in his head, it's it's sweet reason down to the, the bitter end. And of course, some of his changes give him, uh, even if briefly, uh, great pleasure before the uh, uh, the horror returns. Richard T. Kelly, the possessions of Doctor Forrest is out now in paperback. That's all for this edition of the Faber Podcast, but there are lots more interviews with Faber authors in the archive on the website at faber.co.uk forward slash podcast. And if you've enjoyed this interview, do sign up for the monthly Faber programme by visiting iTunes and typing Faber in the search box in the podcast category. I'll be back again shortly with another interview, so until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.